Hi Alice, welcome to the Hi Alice podcast. Last time's episode I did about things that I found relaxing and I realised when I listened back to it that I had left out one of the things that I find most relaxing. So I thought that I would talk about that today and make a part two of last time's episode. The thing that I find maybe the most relaxing is to be sat in front of a real fire, whether that's a fireplace or a fire pit outside or a real fire that you make in the woods or something like that, although that could be dangerous. I don't know how true it is, but I've heard theories about the human brain becoming bigger and therefore more intelligent to do with when we first started to cook and eat meat but I've also heard that being questioned and what some people think is that the invention of fire did bring on new human innovation but not necessarily because we were eating meat that we had cooked but because of the contemplative nature of sitting around and looking at a fire that this would have given our subconsciouses a chance to whir away and that led to creative thinking that we hadn't had previously. I don't think it's the sort of thing that you can prove, but it's something I've heard and I liked the idea of it. I like the idea of the subconscious kind of always whirring away and sometimes when you're just staring into space and you, you don't hear your inner monologue, which is what we generally consider to be thought, but that the brain is always working and sometimes it probably needs that downtime to be working stuff out and perhaps we don't give it enough of that because we are it's far too easy to entertain ourselves now with miniature computers in our pockets all the time and if you're out in a city centre you're bombarded with visual information constantly so maybe we don't get a chance to have our subconsciouses wearing away like we do if we're just sitting and staring at a fire it's definitely on my wish list if I am ever to own a house to have a real fireplace I used to want one of those like wood burner things but I've heard that well and I've heard with real fireplaces as well but they're pretty carcinogenic, which makes sense that smoke, a lot of smoke will kill you quickly. So a little bit at a time is probably not good for you either. So that kind of tracks. But yeah, everything that's good is bad for you, unfortunately. But it was another thing that on the holiday staying in the cabin, there was a fire pit outside so we could barbecue using that but also just have a fire outside and then there was two 
two there was two burners one was to heat up the water and to have uh, in your bath or they there was an there was an out, outside shower so you would heat the water there was a, a water tank with like a wood burner thing beneath it quite a cool contraption and then there was just a a regular wood burner to, to heat the cabin and it was yeah so nice to just be like building all of the all of the stuff around the fire as well like chopping the wood putting the small bits of wood in and then putting the bigger bits in and then basking in the glow and the warmth of the fire to me it doesn't get much better than that if I think about owning a house where money's no object I picture a room with a fire that's essentially like a library with a big comfortable chair and I can just plunge myself into the chair and just sit and read that's uh, a fantasy of mine I always see always think of it when I see say uh, an adaptation of Jane Eyre or something like that and you see a, a room like that that Mr. Rochester will be sat in and I'm always jealous and so yeah reading is the thing that I always picture when I'm picturing having my own fire other than just looking into the fire and then listening to the lovely sounds the crackle that the fire makes which is on on the highest level tier with the babbling brook with my favorite sounds and so because of the reading element i thought i would just quickly today to end the podcast tell you about the books that i've read so far this year the first book i read was roger ebert the film critics memoir and it was called life itself the idea being that the only thing that he loved more than movies was life itself and that was uh i found it very interesting he was a he was a good writer uh, he won a pulitzer prize for film criticism in the 70s so his prose was was nice to read sometimes memoirs are not the best prose sometimes people try too hard as well i enjoyed bruce springsteen's book but it certainly did feel at times that he was trying too hard with the prose that he felt he needed to make it come out poetic or like he might with a song and it didn't necessarily always work but I still enjoyed the book I also have read three other memoirs following reading the Roger Ebert one because in reading his one I realised something that I've realised before, but it, it brought it back to my attention. But the idea that when you read a memoir, it's not really just about the person. It's an accidental history. And they're giving you a personal view in of that history. 
and I find it easier to read about certain events from that perspective to begin with rather than diving into say a textbook type or just a, an 800 page a book about whatever the case may be I find it easier to understand or maybe I remember it more when it's inserted into somebody's personal narrative when you're when they're just contextualizing their life essentially and they're not really trying to give you a full history but it just gives you a perspective and the other memoirs that I've read are Maybe We'll Make It by the singer Margot Price who I guess would primarily be known as a country singer but she also has a lot of influence from rock and soul and yeah I wouldn't pigeonhole her to country that was a very enlightening memoir about the life of a musician who doesn't seem like they are going to make it and she was working for 12 years basically in poverty and just trying all she could and making music but nothing that was she couldn't she couldn't kind of put it all together until she made the album that she made called Midwest Farmer's Daughter in which she just took all of this pain that she had felt in these years that she describes in the book she had twin boys and one of them died not very long after they were born so she lost a child she was an alcoholic she had problems with her husband who was also her musical partner they had problems in their marriage he was also an alcoholic which isn't ideal and she had been this struggling musician for years and years and she finally was able to just put all of that into her music and she made this album called Midwest Farmer's Daughter which to my mind is just a masterpiece and having read the book and now understanding how that was such a culmination of her journey up until that point was just uh, very fascinating one of the, the the album was put out by Jack White's Third Man Records and she tells a funny story in the book of going to the Third Man Records uh, headquarters in Nashville and she met Jack White's right hand man and he said oh we've got this thing where you can perform live and we can record it straight to vinyl and you can go away with a, a record today and she said oh, I didn't bring my guitar and he said oh we've got plenty of guitars around do you want to come and pick one so she did and she said well I'll play a song that isn't on the album but I wrote a couple of weeks ago and she sang this song called Desperate and Depressed and then that take then did get put onto the album 
but what she, what she didn't know was that the whole thing was kind of a an audition and that Jack White was watching from behind uh you know like two-way glass he was watching the whole thing and I just thought that's so that's so Jack White <laughs> to, to do that but the next memoir I read after that I got this book out of the library it was um comedy 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 drama by Bob Odenkirk I don't know if you were uh, if you watched Breaking Bad and then subsequently Better Call Saul but I was a, a big fan especially of Better Call Saul and I have read Brian Cranston's uh, memoir uh, the year previously and so I was I was interested uh, because of that and one of the things that struck me about his memoir is that he really focused on his failures and that was that was refreshing for him not to just be saying oh and then I did this and it was so great and when he does get to the things that are really great he kind of illustrates that a lot of it was luck and that he's working with really good people to to make quality stuff but yeah that was that was interesting and it was it was quite funny the, the way it was written I, I enjoyed that and last uh, memoir out of the bunch that I've read was I just I've never heard of this fellow, but I saw this in the library because I was just looking at the memoir section just to see if anything jumped out at me. Because uh, particularly memoirs I like, I'm not as a big fan of biographies. Obviously, sometimes the person's dead, and so you've got no choice. But other times I'm I just I just always think if I was famous and someone was writing a biography and let I don't know they just went and tried to fight and let's say I didn't really want one to be written so they couldn't talk to you because I would say oh Alice can you not speak to this biographer and so who do they end up speaking to like the people who don't wouldn't respect your wishes or maybe who actively like dislike you you know, who might come forward and say, oh yeah, I went to high school with him. This is what he was like. But anyway, it was this, it was a memoir by a guy called Clancy Siegel and it was called Black Sunset. And it was about his experience of being an agent in the sort of just post golden age of Hollywood. So the the 50s, the late 40s, into into the 50s and what was very present was the the blacklist and McCarthyism and the anti-communist stuff not sure if you know too much about that but like the House of Un-American Activities and loads of these actors and screenwriters and directors and, and all of this got blacklisted so again that was one where through telling his own story of being an agent he was he was really giving you a history of that stuff not in a kind of systematic textbook way if you wanted to then be more interested you would go and read uh, a book that was more trying to do that but now but but to actually sort of contextualize it and to see how it might have felt to be somebody who who was it, he was a, a kind of admitted communist so and to and to have the FBI following him around to actually get the sense of what that was like rather than just read about 
read about it from in a kind of dry perspective and yeah I just find I'm more likely to take in take it in and to to remember it and to historical stuff when it's like that versus a, a dry thing I do also like to go in you know, if it's then a subject I am interested in I will read those sort of books as well so yeah it was those those were the ones out of the memoirs that I've read the, uh, I've also read the graphic novel of Blue is the Warmest Colour, uh, having seen the film quite a few years ago. I don't know if you might have seen that film, but the ending's quite different in the graphic novel, which was interesting. I won't go into spoilers. I remember when I watched the film, because there was a lot of talk and controversy over the way the sex scenes had been filmed, because it was a male director, and as a, a male viewer, I did feel that, yeah, you filmed this to be titillating, and it brought up this thing where I was like, I don't know what it's like for a bisexual woman or a lesbian woman or a, a pansexual woman, what, what their experience of seeing a naked woman is 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 that the same as the male gaze? Because I somewhat suspect it isn't. Um, and then a few years after I'd seen the film, and I'd had that thought, and I thought, oh, I should. Next time I'm in conversation with a a lady who is partial to other ladies, perhaps I should ask them that. And uh, and then I was glad that that occasion had never risen when I saw a program that Channel 4 put out by a filmmaker called, I think it's Desiree, I'm going to butcher her, fire, her last name, but Ak Akravan, something along those lines. It was called, the, the program was called The Bisexual. I think it was like four episodes. Because she had done a film previously to that called Appropriate Behaviour that, that I'd watched and, and enjoyed. But in this program, The Bisexual, she's, she's uh, her flatmate, is kind of um, just supposed to be normal, boring, white, heterosexual man, and he's and she and he goes out with her to a, a gay bar, lesbian bar, gay and lesbian bar, and uh, and so he's with her a lot a lot of her friends who are lesbians, and and he brings this up and says like. Oh, what did you all think about blue is the warmest colour and the male gaze and this and that? And they all just like roll their eyes as if they've heard this loads of times. So I thought, oh, <laughs> I've been direct, I've been directly lampooned. But uh, luckily, I never actually said it in real life. I just thought it. So I, I, you can't get done for your thoughts yet. So there you go. I also read a book about. It was called Super Mario, How Nintendo Conquered America. And it was mainly through a history of Nintendo, but concentrating on Mario rather than doing a large thing, talking about all the different games and all the different things, just sort of talking about Mario as a centre point. Now, I had read a history of Nintendo before in high school, where probably year eight or year nine of high school, so whatever age you are at that point, and it was called Game Over, The Rise and Fall of Nintendo. 
because at that point uh, we had only got to the Nintendo 64 which had been a relative failure and the PlayStation 1 came out and then PlayStation took o- took over Nintendo's market share and so there was a company in decline so it was almost a bit of a sad read for somebody who like me is I like Nintendo so it was interesting to read this written quite a few years later where they've actually bounced back from that following the success of the Wii and uh but yeah the book ended before they that Nintendo then had another failure with the Wii U which is the console that I've actually got at the moment but then they bounced back again with the Switch which has been very successful so I'll have to read another history of Nintendo book at a later date and catch up to see where we are now and the final book that I've read is the first uh, Sherlock Holmes book A Study in Scarlet I really like I a couple of years ago I read well I reread War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells because I'd read it in middle school because we, we did a thing about it in middle school and I just really liked it and then I read The Invisible Man H.G. Wells as well and what I found is because I'll preface this by saying I'm really not very well read at all quite almost embarrassingly so and when I do the, if it comes to literature I've, I've, I'm a little bit better well read in terms of like American literature like the classic literature so you know if there was a top 50 maybe I would have read 10 or 15 of the American ones and if it was like top 50 British I just, it, would, it would be worse than that but what one of the things I really liked about reading this literature from I don't, I don't want to give exact dates but it's like you know late 1800s and early 1900s and stuff it's like the language because now it seems like stylized and you just get words being used in their original context and just like phrases that aren't used anymore and this sort of thing and I enjoy that I enjoy that in films as well and even contemporary films like the Coen brothers and Tarantino one of the things I really like about it is the stylized dialogue and so these books well I mean they might have been it might have been stylized dialogue at the time I don't know enough about about it to know but it, but it could also just now be stylized by virtue of it being antique and so yeah I just find it really enjoyable and uh, I've got a game a board game about Sherlock Holmes called 221B Baker Street that's like it's like a more advanced version of Cluedo where you you go go to different places and get clues and you have to like work work out there's like different cases each time and you have to work out like the the murderer the motive the the weapon yeah and you go to different places and and I enjoyed that game and so I was sort of enjoying Sherlock Holmes just through that even though I hadn't read it and so yeah I was keen to read to read it the the first one so I think I'll go through them in order because there's not that many of them I don't think yeah I really enjoyed A Study in Scarlet I don't know if you've read it but halfway through it kind of turns into a western which is really odd and uh, I can because I was then trying to look up film adaptations out of it just out of interest and I watched one from the 30s where I only found out later afterwards that the the company had bought the rights to the title but not the rights to the story so they just bore no resemblance to the book but yeah I couldn't really find too many adaptations of it 
and the ones that did like almost ignored the fact that they basically tapped into a western halfway through that's that was that was interesting but yeah that kind of takes me up to where i've gotten with the reading and so hopefully you found this relaxing as well and uh yeah i will speak to you very soon goodbye much love